0: Welcome to the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center Equity Spotlight Podcast. This podcast series will feature the center's equity fellows, national scholars from North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio who are working to advance equitable practices within school systems. Each episode will focus on a topic relevant to ensuring equitable access and participation in quality education for historically marginalized students, specifically in the areas of race, sex, national origin and religion, and at the intersection of socioeconomic status.
1: Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Shehri Niktadar. I'm an adjunct faculty in the Department of Special Education at University of Northern Iowa. I'm also a doctoral candidate in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction, and my research is focused on the educational experiences of immigrants and refugee students who also receive disability labels in the education system. Joining me today are two of my professors, Dr. Scott Ellison and Dr. David Hernandez-Saka, and we will talk about a paper that we all co-authored, which is about the educational experiences of students of color with disabilities. Dr. Ellison is an associate professor in the department of educational psychology foundations and leadership studies. And his areas of expertise include social and cultural foundations of education. Dr. Ellison's background is in cultural studies and sociology of education. Dr. David Hernandez Saka is an associate, assistant professor of disability studies in education in the Department of Special Education, and his scholarship is focused on the emotional impact of learning disability labeling, on the conceptions of self for historically multiply marginalized youth labeled with special education labels. Thank you both for joining me today. The name of today's podcast is Educational Experiences of Students with Multiply Marginalized Identities." a qualitative research synthesis of disability research. This qualitative research synthesis paper in which we synthesized studies from 2006 to 2018 about students' experiences is really about students, how students made sense of disability labels within the education system, and how they negotiate and potentially challenge these labels within school settings. I'm excited to talk to you both about our work together. Having said, I'll begin with my first question, which is for Dr. Scott Ellison. So Dr. Ellison, you were the one who suggested that I do a qualitative research synthesis. Can you explain what qualitative research synthesis, or QRS, is and why is it really important?
2: All right, well, thank you for letting me participate. Uh, QRS, uh, it's an analytic tool to synthesize qualitative studies. So this isn't really the same thing as a systematic review, which some of the listeners may have heard of. Uh, A systematic review works to summarize the findings of a set of studies. The idea behind QRS is to create new knowledge from qualitative data sets. Because one of the big problems with educational research is the uh, what works mantra. This kind of research involves the introduction of some kind of intervention into classroom practice that is designed to solve a specific problem and the success or failure of the intervention is measured by assessment data. Now this kind of uh, technocratic mindset has been firmly entrenched in educational policy and practice since uh, the administrations of George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Qualitative studies kind of complicate these instrumental logics. Uh, They focus on the lived experiences of situated actors such as students and teachers. The problem, however, is that qualitative studies in education, they're they're often quite small. Uh, And this is where QRS can come in very handy. Qualitative research synthesis is a tool to synthesize small studies into new transferable knowledge. And what this allows us to do is to develop nuanced kind of ground level perspectives on various education policies and how they're actualized in real classrooms. And more importantly, how various situated actors make sense of, negotiate, and sometimes challenge those policies. So that is why I thought, you know, QRS was uh, study was important here. I felt like we needed to put the pieces together, so to speak, and see what we could learn about this really important topic. So I guess I'll pass it over to David here. I got a question for you. Uh, can you talk a little bit about power and identity and about the emotional experiences of students in our literature?
3: Yes, um, thank you, Scott, um, for that question. Um, So I have a couple of thoughts for this question. First, I think we should really contextualize what is power, what is identity and what is emotionality and how I, um, as an educational researcher, approach these uh, constructs. So power can be thought about in terms of its productive nature but it's also its uh, oppressive nature. And as you mentioned, Scott, sort of um, the importance of QRS to think about how our students of color or historically marginalized youth are experiencing um, dominant institutions such as special education or general education. um, What we found was that it's not either just oppressive or um, um, not just oppressive. It's also an empowering thing as well, um, where, however, this also informs their identity development, or it can constrain their identity development um, as an academic student or any other identities that um, are important to them from their home life, outside of school, um, or inside of school. And so identities are the things that we identify with. And these can be through our narratives, the stories we tell ourselves about who we are, um, or the stories that uh, our peers tell us, or that um, our Uh, family members tell us. So we're all sort of enveloped in identity um, or what we found in our literature, for example, around identity work. And historically, power and identity has been um, studied together. However, what I really care about is the emotional dimensions of how not only historically marginalized youth are experiencing school, such as students with learning disabilities, for example, but also how they are experiencing these identities or these power relationships between the narratives that others tell them who they are versus how they self-actualize for example. And I think what's under-theorized is the role of emotion, feelings, and affects, how we're affected by those stories or by communication broadly defined in terms of the ways in which um, other local actors, like you mentioned, Scott, are interacting with are historically marginalized youth um, within school settings. I personally come from a, personally and professionally come from a disability studies and education approach to students of color with labels of special education. What does that mean? Historically, um, traditional special education has, has understood identities or labels or classifications from what we within our um, scholarly community call the medical psychological model of disability. It really understands identities or labels as being within the child or The the way in which the child is experiencing the educational context is something that their disability experience is theirs. It's in their mind. It's in their neurology. It's in their body. So that would be situating ability and disability within the child or the student. Disability studies and education scholars have historically helped us expand that view to what's called the social model of disability the social model of disability reframes recenters what is impacting um, historically marginalized youth for example within educational settings as experiencing so- social barriers to their, um, well-being or their I- identity development or who they are and however within the literature we there is another model called the psycho-emotional disabilism model of disability that really bridges the medical psychological model and the social model of disability to account for the personal experiences of students or people with impairments not only in their body neurology or mind but those social barriers like i mentioned that the social model has given us and that's again called the psycho-emotional disabilism model of disability however we've talked a lot about disability because those are the students that traditionally the field of disability studies has um, serviced, has identified, has um, provided those um, interventions to. However, the field of disability studies in education has historically uh, argued for intersectional ways to think about the experiences of people with impairments and students with disabilities. And by intersections, I mean, for example, if a student is Latino or Latinx and was labeled or classified with a learning disability or a special education label, um, that student would be experiencing and having or be susceptible to discrimination on two vectors, on because of let's say the historical stereotypes about being Latinx or Latino and the stereotypes about his or her or their ability and disability. So I wanted to contextualize the ways in which I've understand, understood and studied um, how youth have understood their identities at these intersectional dimensions. Emotions, feelings, and affects have historically, through the field of disability studies, uh, uh, through, excuse me, through the field of traditional special education, again, have been couched in students' neurology, students' mind. However, the way in which I study um, students' experiences or narratives about their uh, lived experiences in educational settings, really understands emotions feelings and affects as social and cultural in nature not necessarily just being within their minds um and this is important because the well-being and mental health of um historically marginalized youth such as African American or black or latinx students with disabilities um Historically in schools, special education has been the place of where we deal with emotions or feelings. Um, And there's been a large problem called um, disproportionality within special education since the 1960s um, civil rights movements um, where um, desegregation efforts have begun to um, service all uh, American children, however, th- through disproportionality, we have seen a resegregation of uh, along race, and because disability has been conflated with race, um, and so how m- I'm really passionate about rethinking, refeeling how what we know regarding um, students' um, experiences in schools at these intersections that really help us uh, reframe um, as if these constructs of or labels in special education are benign or neutral. But as we've um, learned through our QRS, um, it's more complex than that. And um, so I hope that this sort of um, understanding of the intersections between emotions, identities, and um, power really has helped us understand how systems of power, such as whiteness or ableism, are also experienced by um, our students within educational contexts. So um, I have a question for Shireen. So Shireen, what do we know from our findings? What experiences and stories students of color themselves have and or are sharing that we can all learn from?
1: Thank you for the question Dr. David and thank you so much for giving that uh, background that would situate our findings really well in this conversation. Um, The way I'll share our major findings uh, from our QRS paper is I'll name the findings and then I'll share students experiences through those themes or those findings. So first one um, is that students overwhelmingly across these studies identified that disability is an assigned identity. As you were mentioning about the issue of disproportionality within the education system, special education specifically, uh, many of the students were aware, many of these students of color were aware about how their racial and their gendered identities are often made sense of through the quote-unquote middle, white, middle-class system and how the disability labels are assigned to them. And one of the things I want to mention here is uh, in the literature, it is mentioned that um, African-American students are, Black students are overrepresented in the category of quote-unquote emotional behavior disorder. And Latino students are overrepresented in the category of quote unquote learning disability. So there is disproportionate overrepresentation of students of color within special education. And these students um, in K to 16 were aware of this uh, systemic placement for them in the special education system. Then you also talked about the psychological and emotional well being. Again, across studies, students shared how they often felt hurt, being made fun of, or felt heavy, or embarrassed. And I'm using their direct words that were present across the data set. They also felt nervous due to these disability labels. They also felt sometimes being punished. And sometimes disability labels, for, for students, they also internalized, you mentioned the, uh, the medical model of disability, they often internalize the medical view of disability about themselves. Then our second theme talks about how students shared that their multiple identities, which you mentioned their racial identity, their gendered identity, their socioeconomic status, how these multiple identities were informing their disability labels or do inform their disability labels students shared systemic inequality through their multiple identities that they experienced. So, for example, I'm I'm going to quote uh, one of the dissertation studies, which was by Washington in 2011. And one of the students shared that there were not that many African-Americans that went to my high school. However, it was almost like most of them were in special education. Students also experience the power relations. You shared about the power relations within the education system. They experience power relations with, uh, uh, within their relationship with educators, with their peers, with administrators. Um, and they made sense that how their ways of living are not considered the quote unquote right way to do things or to be in the society. Um, For example, one student in Whitner's study in 2014 shared that once, and I'm going to quote, uh, provide the full quote, once Miss Susie came in there and tried to take my hoodie away from me, and I wrapped it around my hand and kept a tight fist where she couldn't take my hoodie. And it's either I give her my hoodie or I keep that thing, or if I keep that thing, they're trying to take away from me then they will call the police. So it again goes back to the question or the issue of school to prison pipeline where students again in the the literature, it's mentioned that students of color, specifically African-American boys are overrepresented within the school to prison pipeline because their ways of being and doing in the society are are looked through a white hegemonic lens uh, in the society. Then our next theme is about identity work and Dr. David uh, explained identity work, how students make sense of, uh, and uh, how they they strive to shape a relatively coherent and distinctive notion of personal self identity. Students sometimes use different strategies that would sometimes use strategies that would give them a pass. For example, acting white, code switching, swapping labels, hiding the label, and sometimes within the higher education context, visiting the disability service office so that they can get a label and get the services that they need to be in their classrooms. But also sometimes they resisted in implicit and explicit ways. For example, if they didn't agree with the teacher or if if, uh, they had a fight with another student. Um, you know, kicking the door, throwing school furniture, but that actually had an implication where they were not—they were misunderstood or were not understood—and um, were placed under a uh, under an observation or were or were looked through and looked through um, a lens that probably they they are the problem in the system, and it's and it's not the vice versa, or there is some kind of issue um, that that is personal to them. But sometimes there were implicit uh, ways that they resisted as well. For example, doing well uh, in their classroom uh, to prove to the teacher, hiding the label from their peers and loved ones, ideologically denying disability labels, as well as showing through their facial expressions that they do not agree, if there's some kind of deficit views that are attached with their multiple identities, for example, their race, gender, their social class, or the disability label. Having said, and connecting it back to what you um, asked in the question about, about what we as educators or parents and administrators can learn from our q and paper or can learn from the students' narratives or experiences that they are sharing. I think as educators, we wanna make sure as uh, Dr. Ellison and Dr. Haneda Saka both in, uh, identified that we want to make sure that we include individual voices, student voice, parents voice. And at the same time, I personally feel there are deficit uh, deficit language that we often use in a way that we are not probably aware of that language but um, and the deficit views through are represented sometimes through the language that we are using in terms of disability labels the sometimes disability labels not sometimes actually disability labels uh, carry deficit-oriented meanings or assumptions for students multiple ways of being and doing in the society. So we want to be aware of the language we are using. We want to be aware of our biases sometimes, as well as assumptions, our own assumptions about students' different and multiple identities, such as their race, disability label, gender, social class. Then again, also certain practices that might be, we want to be aware of certain practices that might be stereotyped as upper white middle class So that we have to be mindful how students of color and their parents understand and perceive those practices in the school system and how we as educators might be recommending those practices, we need to be aware and uh, be, be respectful of cultural differences. And value those differences, not just accept those differences, but I'd say valuing differences and different ways of being that are considered quote unquote norms within the school spaces that all differences um, Needs to be considered as a norm if we want to use the term norm. Then also within the context of QRS, we uh, we identified that how students were resisting and going through identity work. The way they were doing it was based on their K-12 location, so position they were standing at. And they were present in this big D discourse of schooling, such as their racial identities in the system and how it was made sense of by the system, how their racial identities were identified or made sense of in the educational system, in the educational spaces <clears throat> and special education then also again connecting back with individual voice including their experiences within classroom spaces so as one of uh, one of the participants shared that they didn't feel that their their cultural experiences were included within the classroom spaces so we want to make sure that we include their experiences their cultural and um, their lived experiences within the classroom spaces and making diverse cultural backgrounds and experiences as a norm, quote-unquote, as I mentioned earlier. Then also being aware of the language we use. Um, then also being aware of the fact that disability labels, as as Dr. Dr. David mentioned, that there could be emotions attached or it can impact students' emotional and psychological well-being, not from a medical lens, but as he mentioned um, from a psycho-emotional model of disability lens, where it can impact students' well-being in a way that it can restrict them from becoming or doing what they could have otherwise done or what they could can do. Because um, we want to understand our students as complete being. Then how and then also how identities are conflated with disabilities. We want to be aware how disability terms work in tandem with other identities that these students carry within the system, like Dr. Dr, uh, David mentioned, uh, the issue of disproportionality within the education system. So we we want to be aware of that. I think for parents, I would say, ask questions to teachers and also try to um, be aware and talk to your children as well, how they are doing, not just in a sense, not only coming from um, a a culturally diverse background I I think sometimes it could be it could be an understanding that parents are not just an understanding it could be an issue within itself that sometimes parents are um, more concerned about the academics but I think at the at the level of personal belong personal relationship also get to learn and engage with your children and talk with them about their emotional and uh, psychological, not again from a medical model of disability lens, but really get to know them and talk to them how they are doing within their schools. And then for administrators, I would say engage families in school spaces, get to know your students, get to know your families, and if possible, arrange home visits for educators. Finally, I want to thank Dr. Scott Ellison and Dr. David Hananasaka both for coming together today and also for your time and energy. I really appreciate it.
3: No, thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Dr. Scott. Back
2: at you, Dr. David. (laughs) Go team.
1: Go team.
0: (laughs) This podcast was brought to you by the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. To find out about other Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center podcasts and other resources, visit our website at www.greatlakesequity.org. To subscribe to a podcast, click on the podcast link located on the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center website. The Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center, a project of the Great Lakes Equity Center at Indiana University is funded by the U.S. Department of Education to provide technical assistance, resources, and professional learning opportunities related to equity, civil rights, and systemic school reform throughout the 13th state region. The contents of this presentation were developed under a grant from the U.S. Department of Education, S-004-D-11002. However, these contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the U.S. Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. This podcast and its contents are provided to educators, local and state education agencies, and or non-commercial entities for the use for educational training purposes only. No part of this recording may be reproduced or utilized in any form or in any means, electronic or mechanical, including recording or by any information storage and retrieval system without permission in writing from the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. Finally, the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center would like to thank Indiana University School of Education, as well as Executive Director, Dr. Kathleen King-Torius, Director of Operations, Dr. Sina Skelton, Associate Director of Engagement and Partnerships, Dr. Tiffany Kaiser, and Instructional and Graphic Designer, Dr. Jasur Dagli, for their leadership and guidance in the development of all tools and resources to support the region.